The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Now, we're continuing our study in John 15, which, and we've said this over and over, this is part of the Upper Room Discourse. And this discourse covers chapters 13 through 17. And it's presented as the discussion, the teaching of our Lord to His disciples that that takes place in a single evening, the evening before Passover, and the Passover that our Lord is crucified on. So in this discourse, our Lord is encouraging His disciples in light of His impending death. It's just 18 hours around that time frame before He is put to death. And they are going to experience great persecution after that time. So He's encouraging them in light of that. Now early in this discourse, Yeshua has exposed Judas as a betrayer. Uh, In chapter 13, verse 30, it says that Judas immediately went out. So from this point in chapter 13, verse 30 on, He's talking only to believers. And that, people, that is very significant. We've got to keep that in our mind. This dealing with believers. Now, let's see if you can remember this. Those last nine chapters of this Gospel are known as the Book of Glory. Okay, <laughs> you're getting better at that. You know, Hopefully by the time we're done, you're going to have this down. Uh, <clears throat> the first 12 chapters were the Book of Signs. And unlike the book of signs, the book of glory is addressed to those who have believed. He's talking to believers. Very significant. Now John 15, 1-7 is dealing with the vine and the branches. Yeshua says, I'm the vine, you're the branches. Now so far we've looked at the first six verses of 15, which give us a metaphor of the vine and branches. And then verses 17, which I mean verses 7 through 17, which we're going to start looking at this morning, make the application of the vine and branches. Now the theme of this section is clearly fruit bearing. I mean the word fruit occurs eight times in these 17 verses. And only occurs two times, two other times in this gospel. So fruit bearing is something that only believers can do. There has to be a connection to the vine before there can be fruit. If you're not a believer, you can't bear fruit. It is impossible. Now, some think that the teaching on the vine and the branches is a parable. And they look at it and they teach it as a parable. I don't see it that way. And I think this is significant. I see this teaching as a metaphor. Now, a parable uses a story to convey a deeper message. Whereas a metaphor refers to one subject when the actual subject is something entirely different. Alright, he's talking about vine, he's talking about branches, but he's talking about, but what he's really talking about is believers' relationship to him. See, all the details of a parable are not important. That's one thing that's stressed about parabolic interpretation. Don't try to force all the details. Well, I think in our text the details are important. That's why I'm saying I don't, I don't think it's a parable. And knowing what you're dealing with helps in, in interpreting what you're dealing with. Alright? Now, as usual, within Christianity, this text is interpreted in many different ways. Depends on who you're listening to, okay? And the main disagreement here 
is over who the unfruitful branches are. All right, because we see in verse 2, he says, there's branches in him that does not bear fruit, and there's branches that do bear fruit. I don't think anybody really argues about who the branches are that bear fruit, but who are these branches that are not bearing fruit? That seems to be the, the center of contention. Now, some see the unfruitful branches as unbelievers or make-believers, what they call, you know, it doesn't matter. They're, they're all unbelievers, whether they're making believe or not. And they see this kind of as a reference to Judas. Judas was, you know, talked about earlier in this discourse, and he's the you know, unfruitful branch, so they just see that as make-believers. Others see the unfruitful branches as believers who lose their salvation. Others see unfruitful branches as believers who are not walking with the Lord and therefore they're going to be disciplined for that. It's my understanding this passage on fruit-bearing deals with the subject of discipleship. Fruit-bearing is a mark of discipleship. Look what he says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now the problem is that most Christians don't see a difference between a Christian and a disciple. They think that those terms are just used synonymously. I see a difference. Disciple is from the Greek word mathetes, and literally means a learner or a follower. See, I think you can be a believer and not be a follower. I know there's people who would disagree with me on that. But a follower is someone who is following the Lord, following the teaching, following the lifestyle. And I, in our text here, I see Yeshua as addressing His followers, His disciples. He's not talking to unsaved people. He's not talking to a mixed audience here. He's talking to believers and believers alone. Now that said, the central theme of chapter 15 is not salvation. It's not about how salvation is obtained. It's not about the danger of losing it. The theme is fruit-bearing, discipleship, and the conditions of fertility. Now I'm aware that we all come to a text with bias. You realize that, right? Even someone who has never read the Bible before when they pick up, they have certain things in their mind and they read it and they, we tend to read our bias into a text. We all have paradigms, certain belief structures that we have that we tend to filter a text through. So it isn't easy to just let the text speak and not add our own baggage to it. That's not really an easy task. And I think we all have to be aware of that and we all have to come to a text and say, let me just examine this text in light of what this text says, in light of context, in light of language, in light of history, and, and try to let the text speak on its own. So as always, I ask you to be a Berean. Don't accept what I say. Examine the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures. See if this is what it's teaching. Do some homework. That's important. In verse 1, he says, I'm the vine... My father is the vine dresser. Now, in the Old Covenant, the fruitful vine was a symbol of Israel, Yahweh's covenant people. So the significance of the claim by Yeshua here to be the true vine is that he viewed himself as the fulfillment of Israel. He was the faithful, only faithful Israelite. He is the fulfillment. He's the true Israel. And his followers are true Israelites. 
understanding this is very important. We, we spent the whole week on this, then we spent another week just dealing with the idea of Israel. So, I think it's significant what he's saying here. We know who the vine is, alright? The Lord's the vine. We know who the vine dresser is, because it tells us, my father is the vine dresser, so there's no argument there. The question again is about the branches. There's two kind of branches. There's a branch in me that does not bear fruit, and there's a branch that does bear fruit. Alright? There are branches that abide. The ones that abide produce fruit. The branches that don't abide, they don't produce fruit. They're cut off. They get dried up. They get burned. So who do the unfruitful branches represent? Now, you know, because it says that these branches get cut off and they get burned, people automatically say, well, they've got to be unbelievers because that can't happen to believers. Well, don't read into the text more that's there. Okay, burned is talking about discipline. There's no issue of hell in this text or anywhere else in the Bible for that matter. All right, notice verse 3. <clears throat> Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Very important that we get verse 3. Our Lord is saying to His disciples, they are clean. By this, meaning they're believers. And we know He means that because if we back up to chapter 13, verse 10 and 11, He says, you are clean. Speaking to His disciples. Then He says, but not every one of you. And you go, why does He say that? It says, for He knew who would betray Him. That is why He said, you're not all clean. Judas was still there. So He said, you guys are clean, but not all. Because Judas is still there. So clean refers to salvation. They are all clean now because Judas is no longer with them. So he says, already you're clean. I don't see this can be taken any other way than Yeshua is telling those he's speaking to their Christians. You're saved. You're clean. So Yeshua then tells those who are clean, those who have believed in Him, those who are His children, He says, abide in Me. He's commanding, this is a command, He's commanding believers to do something. Abide in Him. So those who are believers, those who have eternal life, which can never be lost, they're told to abide in Christ. So there's clearly a distinction here in this text between believing and abiding. I'm talking to believers, abide. No one else. But see, many people see Abiding in Christ is just some, a function of all believers and being a believer is being abiding. No, I think there's clearly a distinction here. He says in verse 6, If anyone does not abide in Me, he is thrown away like a branch, withers, the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. Okay. Yeshua was speaking in this context of abiding and non-abiding believers, and He gave no hint He's speaking to unbelievers. There's no hint of unbelievers in the audience at all. The context is the upper room discourse. Judas is gone. He's talking to Christians. So, how do Christians get burned? Well, some who understand that Yeshua is talking here to believers see His teaching that believers can lose their salvation. Now, we know that can't happen because of what we've seen so, so far in this Gospel. Believers don't lose their salvation. They are secure in Christ. So, what's He talking about? Well, I think He's talking about believers who are disciplined. They don't abide. And listen, believers are commanded to abide, so when they don't, they are disciplined. Now this could be taken to refer to the fires of AD 70. I think that's a possibility here. When he says you're going to be burned up, you know, he's talking about the coming judgment of Jerusalem. That could imply that these believers are not, you know, they're giving up on Christ, such as 
you know, we see in the book of Hebrews, they're going back to Judaism, or you know, maybe they're just not fruit-bearing. But the problem I have with that is I think it limits the text too much. Because if we say, okay, verse 6 is talking about 80-70 judgment, then it doesn't really apply to us at all. And I believe this text applies to us. I believe it applies to all Christians throughout time. Now, we talk a lot here about audience relevance. And that's extremely important. Okay, We need to know who is he speaking to, why is he speaking to them, does it apply to us. But let me just add this here. I think we need to be careful not to write off everything as applying only to the original audience. See, that's a danger I think we have. Well, that's, that applies just to them. So it has no meaning to us anymore. And there's text that that is true in. It's not always easy to discern if a text has application to us. And let me tell you, being a preterist makes this way more difficult. Okay? Because if you're a futurist, everything applies to everybody. And so there's no problem there. You just read, yes, this applies to you. And somehow, some way you make it apply. And we're going to look at some verses here in this text that, you know, talk about unanswered prayer, you know, I mean, answered prayer, and whatever you wish, you'll get. Futurists have trouble with those verses. They do. And you read their explanations and you say, come on, you can do better than that. Now, I was talking to Alan Bondar this week and we were talking about this. When you're dealing with a text, you know, it's harder for us because we've got to figure out, was this limited to just them? And there should be some indication if it was. Was it this for the transition period or is this for all Christians for all time? Well, it's different. It's more difficult, I think, for us. But as I said, given the subject matter here, I believe that our Lord's teaching about a believer's abiding, I think this is timeless. I think this is for the church. I think He still wants those who believe in Him to abide in Him. And we'll see what the abiding has more to deal with this morning. And when Christians don't abide, they are disciplined. We have to realize that fire is a common symbol that occurs throughout Scripture to describe both judgment of believers and unbelievers. Chastening. Difficulties that come when we don't abide in the Word of God. So we've looked at verses 1-6, through which present the metaphor of the vine and branches in the last couple of weeks. Now we're going to begin looking at verses 7-17, through which make the application for us. He says, if you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. See, I see this verse as strengthening my argument here, because this is a third class conditional sentence. Alright, do you know what that is by now? Maybe you will, maybe you won't. This is actually how we use the word if, okay? You know, this maybe you will, maybe you won't. If. It's a third class condition, so... Maybe you will abide. Again, he's talking to Christians. Maybe you won't abide. He's addressing his disciples. They are clean. And those who are clean may abide, but they may not. So I guess you could say it's kind of simple that all Christians don't abide because he's saying maybe you won't. There must be a distinction between believing and abiding because some will not abide. Now let's talk about the word abide for a minute. This is the Greek word mano. And the difficulty you hear with mano is it conveys more than one English word. Okay, you, you got to look at the context and see exactly how it's being used. In John's Gospel, the term is used of dwelling in a certain place. 
staying somewhere as one's dwelling place. So I think we could say that for Lazarus, Manoah has the idea of to make one's home. To abide in Christ is to make our home in Him. To be at home in Him. To feel at home in Him. The idea of having Yahweh as a dwelling place is found in the Tanakh. Look at Psalm 90, verse 1. A prayer of Moses, the man of God. Lord, You have been our dwelling place. Look at Psalm 91. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You'll only look with your eyes and see the recompense of the wicked. Man, that's an awesome promise of Yahweh's protection for His people. Now notice the next verse. He he says, because you have made Yahweh your dwelling place. He's going to protect you because He's your dwelling place. He's your safety. He's your rock. Now he says, if you abide in me, Yeshua, who is Yahweh, is to be our abiding place. For the Christian, it's only through abiding in Him that we can bear fruit. Now if you think of abiding in terms of a good marriage, I think it might help us understand that marriage is to be a lifelong relationship in which the husband and wife grow closer together over the years. Okay, That's the ideal. That's how it's supposed to happen. It doesn't often work that way today. I understand that. Okay, That doesn't change how it's supposed to work. Those who have been married for a while know that it takes work, though, to have a good marriage. Alright? If you don't... When I counsel people about getting married, I, I try to stress this so much because it's so important. If you don't constantly work at a marriage, you won't have a good one. Because it is work. And people say, well, if it's you know, of God and if we're all right, everything should just go and we shouldn't have to work at it. I'm like, you're setting yourself up to fail if you think that. Okay? Because listen, the way I look at it, I have a hard time living with myself. Okay? Sometimes I really aggravate myself. You know, sometimes I don't like myself. I think, why do you do that? Why? And so you add another person to this mixture. Now there's two people living together, and you got conflict most of the time, all right? You got to make changes. You got to make sacrifices. You got to work at it. And if you don't, eventually there will be no relationship. There just won't be. It takes work. But let me tell you something. Here's what I found amazingly over my 45 years with my wife. When you work at it, it is awesome. It can really be awesome. And when you don't, well, get working. Because <laughs> it can be, yeah, it can be, it can be miserable, you know. But it's again, it's one of those things that you have to take some time to put into that. So let's take that relationship and, and put it on this abiding here. I believe that the true the same is true of abiding with Christ. There will be times when you feel so close to Christ, so pumped up spiritually, there's going to be other times when you feel like, does God even hear me? Is He real? Is He around? When you just feel distant. And the key is to make Christ at home with you, to constantly be spending time with Him. Just like with a spouse, you got to you got to spend time with them and you have to know what it is that they want and what they don't want. you got to understand it. The only way you're going to understand Christ is through the Bible. Okay? 
We have to be working on our relationship with the Lord. Listen, just like your marriage, you can't put it on autopilot. It doesn't work. They haven't developed that autopilot for relationships yet, okay? Cars might drive themselves. Marriages and relationships with Christ will not. You're a believer. You've trusted Christ. You understand what it is you know, to, to trust Him and you put your faith in Him. And then some people, that's it. And, you know, and it's not always their fault because a lot of people go to churches where the focal point of church every Sunday is believe in Christ. And I'm like, okay, I did that five years ago. Every I keep hearing the same message. All right, I've been to Baptist churches where, let me tell you, every Sunday it's all about getting saved. I don't care what text you go to. I don't care. It's amazing the text they'll pull from, you know. And this is salvation. And I'm like, wow, you get an imagination to get that out of that text. But that's all it's about. And so you got baby, baby Christians because they're never taught the Word of God. And I don't think it's the church's job to evangelize. evangelize. I don't think that's our job. I think the church is to be the teaching church. You know, our job as we scatter from here is to evangelize. Word is share the gospel with people. As we come together, it's education. All right? So that's what abiding is about. It takes work. In verse 4, he said, Abide in me, and I in you. In verse 7, he says, If you abide in me, and my words abide in you. So what I want you to see here is in verse 7, the phrase, My words abide in you, is substituted for the phrase in verse 4, In you. So we could say that Christ, for Christ to abide in us is for His Word to abide in us. Alright? And that's why it's so important to spend time in the Word of God. Listen, people, you, Christ cannot abide in you apart from the Word of God. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. It can't work. His words have to abide in us if He is going to abide in us. Now, the Greek word here used for words is rhema, which usually has the nuance of the spoken word. This refers specifically to teachings of Christ. So for that immediate audience, it referred to, he's saying to them, the things I've said to you over this time, this three and a half years I've been teaching you, these things I've said have to abide in you. For us, it has to do with the Word of God. We weren't there, but we have Christ's words, we have His teaching written down, and we have to spend time there. The Lord reveals Himself to us, listen people, only through the written Word. People say, well, the Lord reveals Himself to me in dreams. Well, here, let me tell you something about dreams. If that dream lines up with the Word of God, good. Then you got the Bible. It's confirming it. If it doesn't line up with the Bible, then throw it out. So you got the Bible, you don't have to worry about dreams. You know, People say, the Lord said to me, how did He say that to you? If you don't give me a chapter and verse, I'm going to have a problem with that. Okay? Because we have to base our teaching, our understanding on the Bible. That's what we have. He reveals Himself through the written Word of God. So if you want to grow, grow closer to the Lord, spend time in the Bible. Read your Bible. Read it over and over. That's why I stress so much reading your Bible every year. At least read your Bible once a year. And so many Christians have never read it. Read it. Read even the boring parts like in Joshua where he starts naming all the tribes. You know, at least go through it all once. 
On your second time, you can skip through some of the allotments because it's not beneficial to you. But read every verse, everything, every word. Go through that Bible. When I'm reading through my Bible now and I get to those later chapters in Joshua where every tribe got this and that, I just kind of skim through. I've highlighted. If there's nothing highlighted there, I know, okay, keep going. But you'd be surprised. Even in those chapters, you find some gems sometimes, you know? Joshua 22, 22 is one of those gems. You know, the, tribe, uh, the tribes that went to the other side, you know, they built an altar. And so the other tribes are mad at them, and they're going to go, we're going to fight over this. And they said, oh, no, no, we're not, we're not departing from Yahweh, you know? And they say in that verse, El Elohim Yahweh, twice. And it means Yahweh is the greatest God. They say it twice. El Elohim Yahweh. El Elohim Yahweh. Yahweh's the greatest God. We're not, going, we're not building this altar for any other God. This altar is just a witness. And I'm like, that is a gem, man. Yahweh is the greatest God. Now you can miss it, you know, if you're just skimming. So, like I said, read it every word. At least once, you know, and then go through and keep going through over and over because the Lord reveals himself through that word. And if you want to grow closer to Christ, you have to be at home in the Bible. And we have to continue to read it because we forget as fast as we read. You know, sometimes I read something, I'm like, oh my word, I forgot about that. We need to constantly be reminded. Paul put it this way. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The Word of Christ. Now, Christuo here can be either a subjective genitive, which means the Word delivered by Christ, let the Word delivered by Christ dwell in you, or it can be an objective genitive, which would mean the Word about Christ. Let the Word about Christ dwell in you. It doesn't matter which way you take it here. Okay, Either way, we should let the Word delivered by Christ and the Word about Christ dwell in us. Now, he says let it dwell. This is a present active imperative of an oikano, and it means to live in, be at home in. The same idea, dwelling, be at home in. Paul calls upon believers to let the word take up residence, to let it be at home in your life. Sometimes the word of God is so foreign to Christians, they don't have a clue what it's saying. It should be comfortable to you, it should be at home in it. You know, I love when I'm reading through the Tanakh and I come to something and I say, oh, Paul said that. That's where Paul got that from. You know, you just start getting familiar and comfortable there. This word is used in the New Testament of God dwelling in believers. It's used of faith dwelling in believers. And here it's used of the Word of God dwelling in believers. The word dwell literally means to keep house. We should live in the Word of God like we live in our homes. You know, if you've been in your home for a while, you get familiar with stuff, right? I mean, I pretty much walk around in the dark in my house because I know where stuff is. I know what I've banged into before, and you get familiar. You know, you know where this light switch is and that is. You know where the closets are. What's, you get familiar. That's how we're saying be with the Word of God. Be familiar with it. Know it like you do your homes. Let the Word of God dwell inside. Live in it as your house. It needs to inhabit us. This, folks, is more than just reading your Bible. It's reading it, and it's digging into things, and it's spending time meditating on it. Paul adds that it's to richly dwell in us. The word richly is another infrequent word occurring just four times in the New Testament. It's from the old adverb, plusios. It has a twofold meaning of 
quantity and degree. It means abundantly applying it and using it in all its teaching, but also using it constantly at all times, in all circumstances. You know, when you, when you have a circumstance in life, the first thing that comes to mind is a Bible verse. I'm dealing with this, and the Scripture comes to your mind. It cannot do that if you don't spend time in it. And the Holy Spirit needs the Word of God to direct us, to guide us. But again, we have to spend time in it. Paul says, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. In you here is the idea. It's not among you, it's in you. So he's talking individually. There's not a collective application there, but individually, let that Word dwell in you. Now I want you to see something about this text that's very important. This Colossians text. Let's jump over to Ephesians 5.18. Do not get drunk with wine, for that's debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, So we're to be filled with the Spirit. And then he says this, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord, giving thanks always. He goes on to talk about being submissive to one another. So he tells the Colossians, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he says, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart. He goes on to talk about submission. Listen, both these texts, Letting the Word of Christ dwell in you richly, being filled with the Spirit are identical because the passage that follows them are similar. The result of being filled with the Spirit is the same as the result of letting the Word of Christ dwell in your life richly. Therefore, the two are the same spiritual reality looked from different sides. To be filled with the Spirit is to be controlled by the Word. To have the Word dwelling in us richly is to be controlled by the Spirit. Since the Holy Spirit is the author In the power of the Word, the expressions are interchangeable. In other words, the Word-filled Christian is a Spirit-filled Christian. You cannot be guided by the Spirit if He's got no Word in you to direct you. This is the same thing the Lord is teaching us in our text. He says, if you abide in Me. So letting the Word of Christ dwell in you, being filled with the Spirit, and abiding in Christ, they're all similar concepts, people. And they all have to do with spending time in the Word so that the Lord can direct us. We need more people than a casual acquaintance with the Bible. And it's just sad that most Christians don't know anything about the Bible. I read one survey that people were saying that the epistles were the wives of the apostles. I mean, just dumb things like that. But they're doing surveys to people who go to church. you know, And they're asking them these questions and they're like, they don't know anything. We should be comfortable. Now, you start asking those same people about pop culture. Oh, they know all the answers. Why? What's more important? The Word of God needs to saturate us. It needs to be part of our very being. It'll transform the way we think. It'll transform the way we act. It needs to be the program in the back that runs everything. To use computer language here. Everything else depends on it. So... I guess I need to ask you, how much time do you spend getting to know the Lord you love through the Word of God? I mean, if you want to live a productive, vibrant Christian life, you need to be controlled by the Spirit. If you want the Word of Christ abundantly dwell in you, if you want to abide in Christ, you need to discipline yourself to spending time in the Word of God. I hear so often people, I just don't have time then you're way too busy. And there's a lot of junk in your life you could probably get rid of. 
so you could spend time in the Word of God. Our society is just way over-entertained. You know, games and television. And so, so it just distracts from this. But if you neglect to spend time in the Word of God, you do it to your own peril. You really do. God's given us His Word that we might abide in Him, that we might let the Spirit of God dwell in us. So He says, if you abide in Me, and My words abide in you, watch what happens. Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. All right, Lord, I want a Tesla Model X. (laughs) No, it doesn't work that way? See, statements like this have been a stumbling block to many sincere Christians. I mean, they really have. It appears to be a blanket promise to grant requests to any disciple. I mean, if you're abiding, say, oh, I'm spending time in the Word of God. I, I spend, let's say I'm spending hours every day, and I'm praying for hours every day, and I'm just trying to be like Christ, and I'm like, man, that's my verse. Where's my Tesla? Well, it says, ask whatever you wish. I wish I had a Tesla Model X. So where is it? It's pulling up now. It's pulling up now. <laughs> Oh, that's right. <laughs> Listen, does any believer today really enjoy this extravagant prayer promise? You know, I seek to live my life by abiding in Christ, but I can tell you right now that <laughs> whatever I wish, I don't get, okay? Even things that I think are in the will of God that I pray for, spiritual things I pray, they don't happen. We talked about this earlier, all right? We got to be careful when we say certain things only apply to the first century. Or we talked about that. We got to be careful when we're just applying things. But this promise of answered prayer may be one of those things that we just have to assign to the first century. Because, listen, I don't care who you read behind. Look at the words of this verse <coughs> Ask whatever you wish. And it will be done. Man, that sounds awesome. But do any of you know that as a reality? Whatever you wish. doesn't say ask for anything spiritual you wish. Ask for anything in the name of my Father that you wish. You know, no, it just says if you abide, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. Now, I really believe our Lord is talking here to those first century disciples who in just 53 days are going to experience Pentecost. They're going to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit. They're going to have supernatural gifts to minister to the body of believers, the church. So it's my opinion that this promise, like those we looked at in chapter 14, verse 13 and 14, apply to those first century disciples and only to those first century disciples. It is these disciples that our Lord will use to take the church from infancy to maturity during the transition period. People say, well... Our prayers will be answered when we pray that God's will be done. Have you ever prayed for God's will to be done and it hasn't? I mean, I see things in the Scripture that are God's will. I think it's God's will that Christians grow as Christians, right? I pray that all the time for people that don't grow as Christians. So, you know, say, will you pray according to the will of God? The moral will of God or the sovereign will of God? You know, if you pray according to the sovereign will of God, which you don't know, it's going to happen, but you don't know what God's sovereign will is, so it's hard to pray that way, all right? So, I think that 
it's really tough to difficult. I mean, it's tough to deal with this verse and just say, yeah, that's what it means, okay? Because, you know, again, I think he's promising these men who are going to carry the gospel to the world. And this is a very significant problem. Our text says, ask whatever you wish. We need to see this promise of answered prayer in the context of, of what Yeshua has already spoken. He's made great promises about our work of ministry through His disciples, what He's going to do with them. They would naturally have had fears and reservations. And He gives them the critical key to carrying out the God-given task. Ask whatever you wish. Because you're abiding in Me. My Word's abiding in you. Ask what you wish. I'm going to help you get that done. I see this is made to the first century disciples whom He is leaving. It is for their work in the transition period. Now again, let me add a caution here. I'm not saying that prayer is not for today. I'm saying this promise is not for today. Because I don't know anybody that can say, I, whatever I wish I pray for, I get it. This is for the first century saints in the ministry. The incredible ministry they're going to have a birthing and carrying forth, maturing the church of God. Alright, he says in verse 8, By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Alright, so we could say here, bearing fruit glorifies God, right? I mean, that's what it says. You bear fruit, my Father is glorified. So i got to ask, what's fruit? Well, it's from the Greek word here, karpos. Karpos means result. It means outcome. It could literally mean fruit. In this context, I believe the fruit is, hang on, you ready for this? Not apples, not pears. Christ-likeness. That's the fruit here. It's Christ-likeness. Christ-likeness is produced in us as we abide in Christ. Just as an orange tree produces oranges, an apple tree produces apples, an abiding Christian Produces Christ's likeness. Now look at Paul's prayer for the Philippians' fruitfulness in Philippians 1.11. He says, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Yeshua the Christ to the glory and praise of God. The word fruit here is again karpos, and the word righteousness here is dikaiosune, and it means Christ's likeness. The fruit of righteousness, which is Christ's likeness. The Shorter Catechism states that the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And Yeshua says that we will glorify God when we bear much fruit. Now, I think as others see what God produces in and through us as we abide in Christ, they're going to get a glimpse of Christ. In other words, they'll see Christ in us. The Father is glorified as He sees the character of His Son lived out in our lives. So the real goal of discipleship is not information, but formation of the disciple into Christ's likeness. Look at what Yeshua said in 6.40. He said, A disciple is not above his teacher, but everyone, when he is fully trained, will be like his teacher. That's what happens in discipleship. A disciple is formed to be like his teacher. So all believers are like Christ positionally, but I think he's calling us here to be like him practically. 
Our lives are to look like Christ. He says He wants us to bear much fruit. The more we abide in the presence of Christ, the more fruitful you're going to become. The more you focus on Christ, the more fruitful you become. The more you focus on yourself, the less fruitful you'll become. Now, you know it's easy to focus on yourself. So again, there's that discipline to put your mind on Christ, to focus on Christ, make Him, make it about Him, not about you. Now, notice there are degrees in fruit bearing. He says in verse 2, some fruit. He says more fruit. And now he says much fruit. I think the more you abide in Christ, the more you make Him your home, the more fruit you're going to produce. Now, some expositors argue that fruit is inevitably the tr- in the true Christian life. In other words, if you're a Christian, you're going to bear fruit. And they'll have the little buzz phrase, no fruit, no root. All right? And they'll use things like Matthew 7.20. You will know them by their fruits. Well, here's the thing. Matthew 7.20 is talking about false teachers and how you'll know false teachers. And the fruit is what they say. So you'll know they're false teachers by what they say. It doesn't line up with Scriptures. He's not talking about believers here. He's he's talking about false teachers. That's important. We're not called to be fruit inspectors. Okay? If fruit was inevitable in a Christian life, why does Yeshua command Christians to abide? That doesn't make any sense. It's inevitable. All Christians will produce fruit. Okay, then why bother telling us, commanding us to abide? And why say, if you abide? When you might not abide. See, if we look at this text, those things don't add up. I've never been commanded to breathe. Why? I do it pretty naturally. I do it in my sleep even. I'm so good at it. Okay? It's just natural. So, you know, no one needs to command me to breathe. Why command you to do what you automatically do? He says, you will prove to be my disciples. So what does fruit prove? Does it prove that you're a Christian? That's not what this text says, but that's what most people say. It says that fruit proves discipleship. And again, I'm saying there's a distinction. Faith proves you're a Christian. Faith. Now, as I said in our last study, the problem is that most people don't see a difference between a Christian and a disciple. They incorrectly think that believer and disciple are synonymous. But I think they're two different terms describing two different groups of people in relationship with Yeshua. Believers are called to abide. They all don't do it. Now, commenting on this verse, Paul Harris writes this, The original reading is difficult to determine because the external evidence is rather evenly divided. The aorist subjunctive of Gedemai is supported by, the most, by most Alexandrian manuscripts, including apparently 66, along with the Western Unical D. The future indicative of Gedemai is supported by the majority of manuscripts and by the Byzantine text type. Thus, the two actions are really one and the same. Bearing fruit and being Jesus' disciple are not two different actions, but a single action. The first is the outward sign or proof of the second. In bearing fruit, the disciples show themselves to be disciples indeed. So fruit bearing is bound up with discipleship. If you're His disciple, you'll bear fruit. If you bear fruit, you're His disciple. The one stands by metonymy for the other. To be a disciple is to bear fruit. To bear fruit is to be a disciple. Not a Christian, but a disciple. Now watch what he says in verse 9. 
This is one of those verses you read over so many times you don't even get it until you got to stop and focus on it for a minute. He says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. Now we see here that the relationship between the Father and the Son is the paradigm for the relationship between the Son and the believer. D.A. Carson writes this, As the Father has loved me, Jesus says, and the aorist has loved, probably signals the perfection, the completeness of the Father's love for His Son, including His love for Him before time began. So have I loved you. Again, the aorist, I have loved, is used. He says, Jesus depicts His love for His own as a completed thing, so eminently does the cross stand in view. So He's saying, has loved here. It's a past action he's looking at it for because it's so certain to happen. He's going to that cross. He's demonstrating his love. Now, here's what I want you to get here in this text. The measure and manner of Yeshua's love for us, the way Christ loves us, is as the Father loved Him. People, this is a huge statement. The way the Father loves the Son is the same way the Son loves us. How do you, much do you think that God loves, the Father loves the Son? That's the way that Christ loves us. Now, let's see if we can make this practical for a second here. Going through difficult trials can often cause Christians to doubt Christ's life, love for them. you agree with that? I've seen it happen so many times. You know, they're going through a tough time. Circumstances are bad. You know, how did God love me? We tend to think like this. You know, if Yeshua really loved me, why will He let me go through this horrible trial? But Yeshua says, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. So let me ask you this. Did the Father's love for His Son spare Him from trials? See, we think God's love should spare us from trials, but did the Father's love spare the Son? He loved the Son. Did it spare Him? No. Look what Isaiah says. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. That's substitution. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds, we are healed. Now let's drop down to verse 10. He says, Yet it was the will of Yahweh to crush Him. You know, I don't think we question the love of the Father for the Son, even though He crushed His Son. So, believers, we should never question Yeshua's love for us, even though He puts us through grievous trials. He loves us in the same way the Father loves Him. Man, that's great if we really understand that. We are loved by Christ, just as He is loved by the Father. So, then He says this, Abide in my love. This is an heiress active imperative. In other words, believers are commanded to abide in Christ's love. Why command us to do things we're going to do? We don't need commands if we're automatically going to do them. So abiding in His love is not automatic. It's something we're commanded. It's something that takes effort. It's something that takes concentration, action on our part. So, let me ask you a simple question. How do we abide in His love? All you got to do is read the next verse. How do we abide in His love? He tells us very clearly. If you keep my commandments. 
you will abide in my love. Oh, that's simple. Right? Just as I kept the Father's commandments and abide in His. So He's comparing you. See, you got to keep my commandments and you'll abide in my love because I kept the Father's commandments and I abide in the Father's love. This is a third class conditional sentence, which means potential action. Maybe you will keep my commandments. Maybe you won't. Now again, he's talking to believers and he says, maybe you won't keep my commandments. Now, most believers think, well, if you're a Christian, you're automatically going to keep his commandments. Really? And why does the Lord say this? The word keep is from the Greek tereo. It means to guard or to observe. It conveys the idea that you take the commandments of Christ seriously. You hold them to be precious. You give attention, closely following the Lord's commands. Lazarus has stressed Yeshua's obedience to the Father in this Gospel. Over and over. He only does that which the Father wants him to do. He just stresses that all through. Now Yeshua called His disciples to follow His example, to abide in His love by keeping His commandments. See, the standard for Christian obedience is nothing more than Christ's obedience to the Father. Yeshua has stressed this over and over in this Gospel. He said in 14.15, If you love Me, you will keep My commandments. That's the definition of love. That's how you show it. 14.21, He who has My commandments and keeps them, He's the one that loves Me. So Yeshua inseparably joins love and commandment keeping. He summed up the whole law in two commandments. Remember that there? Kevin said, what's the greatest commandment in the law? I just... Let narrow it down for me. Okay, give me the greatest, because there's 614 laws in the Torah. You know, give me, give me, give me, make it simple. Give me a commandment. He said this, what? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Secondly, it's just like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's it. He said, on this hangs all the law and prophets. Just love God and love your neighbor and do what you want. I was thinking about that yesterday because I was a little aggravated with my neighbor. And I thought, Lord, you told us to love our neighbor, and if that was easy, I guess anybody would do it. But when it's not easy, then that's what it's all about. Love your neighbor. So, you know, try to go the extra mile and love my neighbor. And it just makes life a little bit easier, you know? Love your neighbor. So, that's it. Two commandments. Love God. Love your neighbor yourself. Do what you want. Now, the Greek word here for love, he says, abide in my love. You'll abide in my love. Is agape. This wasn't used much, you won't find it much in classical Greek, you won't find it much in Kone Greek, until the church began to use this word. This is basically the church kind of brought this word out of obscurity and began to use it. All right? It's use of selfless, sacrificial, loyal, active love. Love is a verb, you've got to do something. Love is not an emotion, but that's how we use it today in our culture. Uh, it's an emotion. If you feel emotional, I love this. I love that. I love, you know, it's all emotional. But the New Testament term for agape is about action. It's about sacrifice. I think it's theologically analogous to the Hebrew term hased. Hased meant covenant love and loyalty. There's action there. Barrett writes this. Love and obedience are mutually dependent. Love arises out of obedience, obedience out of love. See, the proof that Yeshua was abiding in His Father's love was His obedience to go to the cross. And the proof of our abiding in Christ's will is obedience to His commands. So He gives us commands, and if we obey them, 
we're walking in His love. Now, let me ask you this. Be honest, okay? What word comes to your mind when I say obedience? What comes to your mind? Duty? Drudgery? Legalism? Submission? No fun? Rules? Nobody. This word seems like it's a dirty word. Even in Christianity. Obedience. Oh, don't say that. We're under grace. We are under grace. But we're called to obey. Okay, let me show you a word that should come to your mind when you hear obedience. If you understand this text. These things have I spoken to you that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. So when you hear the word obedience, you think of joy. Joy. <laughs> right? These things, he says, is everything he just said in the previous 10 verses, you know, I think particularly and practically the application in 7 to 10. So why did Yeshua say these things to his disciples? He says that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. You know, in verse in chapter 14, 27, he promises them peace, his peace, and now he promises his joy. Yeshua explains why he said what he said. His intention was not to create anxiety or fear. His intention wasn't to lay necessity on keeping a legalistic bunch of rules. His intention for telling them all this was their joy. Their joy. That's why. Abide in me. Why? I want you to have joy. You're not going to have it if you don't abide. Earlier, Yeshua had told them, Don't let your hearts be troubled. Because He said, I'm leaving you. I'm going to the cross. I'm going to die. They didn't like any of that. But He says, don't worry. I said all this for your joy. Hearts were heavy that evening. He told them some very distressing things that troubled them. But you know what's interesting? When we get to the book of Acts, we find joyful believers often in the midst of adversity. They take these guys and they beat them and they leave the council the presence of the council, rejoicing. What? Why were they rejoicing? Because they were worthy to suffer for His name. I mean, how <laughs> we don't too often find joy in that kind of stuff. They were joyful. Joy in the Lord marked the testimonies of countless Christians who died at the hand of executioners throughout post- and pre-Reformation Europe. The joy of Christ was evident in Paul and Silas. Listen, they're arrested for preaching the Gospel. They're whipped. And they're placed in a dungeon. In stocks. In an inner prison. Those stocks designed was to stretch you. Their backs are bleeding. They're stretched. And they're down in the dungeon. And they're not whining. They're not American Christian. They're not whining. They're singing. Hey Silas, do you know that hymn? Let's sing. Without any instrumentation, they just break out and they're down there in the dungeon singing. Thomas Watson wrote this, The more holiness any man has, the more he shall enjoy him, in whose presence is fullness of joy. And the more any man enjoys the presence of God with his spirit, the greater will be his heaven of joy in this world. Right now, he's saying, you want joy? Joy doesn't come from all the superficial things the world offers you. It doesn't come from material possession. Joy comes from fellowship, abiding with Christ. 
A joy is something that we can grow in, we can increase in our lives. Or ebb and flow, as Watson says, this is because joy is a byproduct of abiding in Christ. See, the more you abide, the greater is joy. Because when you're walking in a relationship with Christ, you're like Paul. You know, Paul didn't care what people did to him. He was shipwrecked, he was beaten, he was stoned, he just had joy of the Lord because his relationship was with Christ. He he was abiding in Christ. You know, we look for joy in so many things, people, today. It's in Christ. And it comes from abiding. Believers, we're commanded to abide in Christ. Only Christians can be given this command. You can't, Lord can't command unbelievers to abide in Christ because they can't do it. They're not connected to the vine. They'll never produce fruit in their lives. This can only happen. We can only abide as the Word of Christ dwells in us. We have got to spend time in the Word of God. It has to saturate our lives. It's not a, our daily bread, people, reading half a verse and somebody's comment on it. Okay, It is reading the Word of the living God, meditating on it. Praying over it. As we learn the Word of God, as we obey the Word of God, we will abide in Christ, and as we abide in Christ, we will bear much fruit, and we will prove that we are His disciples. And all this is so we will experience joy. He said, these things I'm writing to you, so you'll have joy. That's why I'm not trying to make your life hard. I'm not trying to make life miserable for you giving you all these commandments. I want you to obey my commandments. I want you to spend time in the Word of God. I'm not trying to make your life hard. I'm trying to make your life joyful. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the Word of God. Lord, sometimes we have everything so backwards. Please, Father, teach us. Help us to realize our calling as believers is to abide. Not in the world, but to abide in You, Lord to spend time in the Word of God, communing with You, to demonstrate our discipleship through our fruit bearing. And Lord, as we do these things, we thank You for the incredible promise that Your joy will be in us. Lord, thank You for Your grace to us. Amen.